Today I'm speaking with Johan Hari. Johan is the New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Scream, which is being adapted into a feature film. He has been twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International, UK. He's written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and many other journals. His TED Talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong, has more than 20 million views. And his most recent book is Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And we talk about both his recent books, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. So we mostly speak about the dynamics of addiction and depression, but this leads us to talk about politics and the state of the world and humanity's search for meaning. Anyway, Johan is interested in many things, and I was very happy to get him on the podcast. So, now I bring you Johan Hari. I am here with Johan Hari. Johan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Sam. You're the, one of the very few people I know who said my name right first time. Remember the very first time I once waited for six hours in an emergency room because they were calling for Joanna Harry to uh-huh. come forward. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've always right, been impressed by right. that. So I forget how we first connected. I think what happened is I, I noticed you wrote a review of my first book, The End of Faith, that, oh, I, yeah. that I didn't hate. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't remember. I thought I got a feeling we met through Richard Dawkins, yeah. but that might be a completely false memory on my I don't part. know. I don't know. But yeah. I mean, you probably, you seem, you must have been 14 when you wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> I Let just have know. a weird baby face. I'm actually tragically old. It's just. Uh, how old are you? I'm nearly 40. I'm 40 in a few months. Oh, nice. Well, I've got a friend who just a baby. And for some reason, babies always react positively to me. And she thinks it's because babies think I'm their king when they uh-huh. see me. I'm just right. like a bigger version of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, you have two books. Unfortunately, I've only read one of them. You have a new book out that I haven't read, but I, I sure. believe I have the gist from seeing some of your public utterances. But they, they seem clearly connected. The first book, Chasing the Scream, was a call to sanity uh, with respect to the, the war on drugs and, and our, the way we think about addiction. And now you have this new book, Lost Connections on Depression, right? And it seems to me that the connection there, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're arguing that we are not just bags of chemicals that can be best thought of as suffering chemical imbalances with respect to addiction and depression. There's much more to be understood about our circumstance to account for both of these problems. And while it seems to me that you're often assumed to be discounting any neurophysiological understanding of these problems, I don't think you're doing that in either case, but neurophysiology isn't the whole language game we need to play with respect to talking about these problems and talking about solutions. I think that's a really good way into it. And I I think I came to the second book. They were both quite personal journeys for me. So I wanted to understand addiction because we had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And I was too small then to understand why. But as I got older, I realized we had drug addiction in my family. So I ended up for my book, Chasing the Scream, going on this big journey all over the world to try to figure this out and to look at the war on drugs more generally. And I think that the, the thing in that that led me to the second book was, was what I learned about the, the causes of addiction. So you're totally right. Biology is an important part of both addiction and, and depression. With, with all mental health problems, there's a very broad scientific consensus. There's three kinds of cause, right? There are biological causes like your genes and brain changes. 
There are psychological causes, how you think about yourself, and there are social causes, your environment and how we live together. And they play out in all mental health problems to some degree. So you think about something like dementia, right? Dementia has clearly got a very heavy biological component. But even with dementia, we know your psychology can slow it down significantly if you speak more languages, for example. And we know your environment can have a massive role in slowing it down. People who are socially connected, who have a strong sense of meaning and purpose, can develop dementia much more slowly. And there's, there's good evidence for that. So one thing that surprised me is what I learned about addiction in relation to that. And you and I talked about this a few times before, but I'm, I think about this. It was a, re, a real moment that changed my life. It made me realize I had misunderstood even what I thought I'd seen in front of me with some of the people I love. So if you'd said to me when I started doing the research for Chasing the Scream, what causes, for example, heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were an idiot. And I would have said, well, the clue's in the name, dummy, right? Obviously, heroin addiction is caused by heroin. For 100 years, we've told this heavily biological story about addiction, which is that addiction is caused by the chemical hooks in the drug. We think, you know, I would have thought if we'd kidnapped the first 20 people to walk past this hotel and and I'd injected them all with heroin every day for a month, yeah. like a villain in a Saw movie. As, as one does. <laughs> At the end of that month, they would all have been heroin addicts for a simple reason. that there are, there are these chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. They would, in fact, be hooked. This is where we get the word hooked from. And that's what addiction is. And I actually learned that that's, that's while chemical hooks are real, and I can talk about the real role of them, and it's important to stress they're real. Actually, there was a, I went and interviewed a wonderful man in, in Vancouver called Professor Bruce Alexander who's really changed how we think about addiction. It led to some really amazing changes all over the world. So Professor Alexander explained to me, the story we've got in our heads that addiction is caused just by the chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a bit sadistic. You, you take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. You might remember the famous ad in the 80s, the Partnership for Drug-Free America advert that showed this experiment and said, you know, something like, it will happen to you. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander came along and said, well, hang on a minute. You put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park which is basically heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of colored balls, they've got loads of wheels, anything a rat can want in life that a rat finds meaningful, it's there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the, and the drug water, and of course they try both. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water very much. None of them ever use it compulsively, none of them ever overdose. So when rats don't have the things that make life meaningful, you get almost 100% compulsive use and overdose. When they do have the things that make life meaningful, they don't develop problematic use. And there's lots of human examples of this that I'm sure we'll get to. But for me, the, the core of this is I realized that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. As you tightly rightly point out, it doesn't mean there aren't real biological dimensions to, to addiction. There are. There's biological, psychological, and social aspects. But I realized how, how much I'd underestimated the role of these social aspects. And when I when I started talking about this all over the world, and that line got a lot of traction, the opposite of addiction is connection, people so totally reasonably started saying to me, well, what do you mean by connection? You can't just mean social connection. And I had never meant that. Um, I'd, I'd written about how Portugal had taken the lesson of Rat Park and applied it to their drug policy. I'm sure we'll get to that. Um, and they didn't just give people friends. They did a lot more than that. But it's very conscious. Well, 
why, I guess it was this mystery that was hanging over me, which was partly what does connection mean? And I was thinking about that through these two other mysteries that were really playing out for me, right? As we said, I'm, I'm nearly 40. Every year I've been alive, uh, depression and anxiety have increased here in the United States and across the Western world. And loads of indicators of despair have been increasing, suicide, addiction, and so on. And I want to figure out why, partly because I myself have been quite depressed. So I ended up going on this journey and I realized there was a real, if you excuse the pun, connection between the mystery I was trying to understand with addiction and the mystery I was trying to understand with depression and anxiety. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Just to season the last data you referenced, do you recall how much this is, what the metrics are and how much depression, anxiety, and suicide have gone up? And we know what the met metric of suicide is. So suicide is, but... is much easier to measure. With depression, it's, it, depression and anxiety, it's hard to measure for several reasons. What, what, what we can measure relatively easily is reported depression and anxiety. So people going to their doctor. Those are probably not the best figures in the sense that for two reasons, there's been a bit significant decrease in stigma, which means more people are willing to come forward. That's a great thing. Also, because we've got much lower threshold treatment for depression, right? It used to be, if you think about when, you know, my grandmother was the age I am now, firstly, it would have been too stigmatized. She would not have gone to her doctor. But if she had, the only treatments they had were really very potent things that kind of knock you out, right? Now, obviously, someone can go to the doctor, they can be given much kind of uh, still very powerful and potent drugs, but much lower. It's much easier to get hold of them. There's much less, um, much less weight put around taking those drugs, partly because they are let, they're still potent, but they're less potent than the drugs that people used to be given. So I don't think that's a great metric. I think there are other metrics we can use. People describing themselves as depressed is important, but the reason why I feel fairly confident that depression has risen is because when I went all over the world, interviewed the leading experts about this, I learned that there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Generally, people, when they go to their doctors, are told a very simplistic story. I mean, when I was a teenager, I went to my doctor and I, I said that I had this feeling like pain was kind of leaking out of me and I couldn't control it. I couldn't regulate it. And my doctor said to me, well, we know why people feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you these drugs. You're going to feel better. So I started taking an antidepressant that's marketed in the US as Paxil. I felt significantly better for a few months, really a lot better. And then this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back to my doctor. My doctor gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt better, a little bit less time. Again, the pain came back. I kept being given higher and higher doses until for 13 years, I was taking the maximum possible dose and really believing this story that it was just about serotonin which was leaving me rather confused about why I kept this depression was coming back. But what I learned is there's in fact scientific evidence for nine causes. Two of them are indeed biological, although I don't think a chemical imbalance is the right way to, to characterize them. And lots of those factors, those factors that we know cause depression and anxiety, have been rising. So given that we know that they cause depression and anxiety, I'm sure we'll get to them. And given we know they've been rising, given we know they cause depression and anxiety, I think it is, and given that significantly more people are describing themselves as depressed and anxious. I think you can reasonably put all that evidence together and say there has been a real increase in depression and anxiety. And we see this in all sorts of indicators, you know, suicide has significantly increased. I mean, it's an extraordinary fact that when you put together suicide and opioid deaths, average white male life expectancy has fallen for the first time in the peacetime history of the entire United States, yeah, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so there are all sorts of indicators of depression for which we have very robust numbers, which I think 
which not coincidentally are clustering together in the same places, right? So why is, um, if depression was just a chemical imbalance in the brain, if addiction was just a response to accidental chemical hooks, why would we see that depression clusters in the same places as suicide, in the same places as addiction, in the same places as antidepressant use? That, that wouldn't make sense. The fact that these indicators are in the same places as support for President Trump, interestingly, in a lot of them, we wouldn't see these things clustering together if they weren't densely related, right? Well, some of those things are clearly causally related. So if, if you're depressed and you're being prescribed antidepressants or you're addicted to opioids and, uh, and suffering the consequences of that, that's a cluster of problems and subsequent dysfunction. Clinical depression begets all kinds of other dysfunction in your career and your relationships. So it is that you do have a chicken and the egg phenomenon that you have to tease apart there. I think that's a really important point. I think it helps if we see it in the context of clustering with something else. And this is something that unites a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections. So everyone listening to your podcast knows they have natural physical needs, right? Obviously you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs, right? You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And our culture is good at lots of things. I'm extremely glad to be alive today. I love mm. dentistry. I love gay marriage. There's mm. a whole range of things that I'm thrilled to be alive now. My, my ancestors in many ways had you know, Irish peasants and as Swiss peasants had you know, significantly worse lives in all sorts of ways. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs. I think there's good evidence for that. And while it's certainly not the only thing that's going on, I think it's the thing that is driving these crises. So that can sound a bit weird in the abstract. I'll give you a specific example. This is the loneliest society there's ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, not the average, but the most common answer is none. Right? There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. This is part of an enormous array of social science that shows there's been an explosion in loneliness, isolation. And I spent a lot of time talking about this with a, an amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who's the leading, who was the, sadly just died, he was the leading expert in the world on, on loneliness. And he, I remember him saying to me, you know, why are we alive? Why do we exist? In part, it's because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't, in a lot of cases, bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't, in a lot of cases, faster than the animals they took down. They were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And, and if you think about those circumstances where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, you were anxious and depressed for a really good reason, right? You were probably about to die. You were in terrible danger. Those are the physical responses we still have to feeling isolated, yet we are the, the first humans ever to try to disband our tribes and, 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 and tell ourselves that we can do it all alone. And, that, and it's, it's a key factor in why we're so distressed. One issue is there are no bright lines between biology and psychology and social phenomenon and culture. At every point, it is coherent to think about a, an individual as being entirely the inheritor of whatever neurophysiological states are being 
kindled on his brain as a result of all of the influences and the underlying genetic propensity he's got to respond to those influences. So what you have is your brain and its states in each moment producing the character of your mind. And the cash value of any cultural meme or presence or lack of healthy relationships, anything that's getting in is getting in by virtue of making some impression physiologically on you as a system. So it's always tempting to think the nearest lever to hand is making a change directly in the person, right? So if we could get a pill that would truly cancel depression, it's not incoherent to think that such a pill could exist, right? Because depression, you know, to arrive and be expressed has to be a matter of what your brain is doing. But that's true with anything. I mean, that's true with any other state of mind that you could experience. And we're sort of meandering into a time where the possibility of intruding on ourselves technologically and pharmacologically is going to become more precise and more tempting. And we could become untethered to the more certainly traditional, more normal, probably more normative mechanisms by which we regulate our state. So it's like it's one thing to regulate your state by diverting yourself with social media or a video game or some entertainment, something that is that further isolates you, but may actually scratch some kind of psychological itch for the time being. It's another thing to actually establish a real connection to another person that begets its own ways of regulating your state. It's conceivable that we could find ourselves on a path to a Aldous Huxley-like terminus where we essentially all self-medicate in a way that becomes more and more effective. And what you're, what you're bemoaning here is how ineffective the status quo is for most people. We're very lonely. We're very isolated. There's lots of addiction to things that are obviously unhealthy. But it's conceivable that we're just going to get in over the hump of all of these less than optimal ways of isolating ourselves pleasurably and we're heading toward a future where there are more ideal ways of becoming isolated and yet arguably happier. So I'm not wishing for that future. I think, as I said, there's, there, sure. there, you, you could imagine a better place to arrive than that. But it seems to me that there's a lot of energy and effort directed at solving the problem in, in that direction. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. And it's something I, I kind of tried to think about a lot. There's a lot in what you just said that I want to think about. So I went to see this South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield. He's a great guy. And, and Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001, I think it was, when they first introduced chemical antidepressants in that country. And the local doctors, the Cambodians, had never heard of these drugs. So they were like, what are they? And he explained. And they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? And he thought they were going to talk about some kind of like herbal remedy, like, I don't know, St. John's Wort or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the rice fields sometime later. And the guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed. He developed classic depression. Apparently, it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. And I'm guessing it was traumatic for obvious reasons, right? And they said to, to Dr. Summerfield, well, so we gave him an antidepressant. And Derek said, well, what was it? And they said, well, they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense, right? That it wasn't some 
purely some biological malfunction. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this situation that was screwing him up so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. And they said to Derek, well, you see, you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the whole world, the World Health Organization, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not you know, a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs, and you need real love and help and support to get your needs met. And what I think is interesting is we've spent so much time and so much of our money and resources as a society trying to find a physical, technical fix where we have not succeeded very well. Chemical antidepressants have some role to play, but the best long-term research into chemical antidepressants, the STAR-D trial, shows most people taking them do become depressed again. I want to stress again, that doesn't mean they have no value, they have some value. But we've just got to be honest, we've been massively increasing these, these, these attempted technical fixes for the last, every year, for the last 35 years, and every year depression and anxiety has continued to rise. There's clearly something we're missing in those pictures. And, and one of the things that struck me going all over the world and trying to find, well, who has built solutions based on the best evidence? Actually, the people who, I admire the people doing the technical biological work, it's really important, but they have so far yielded quite limited results. Actually, the places that have done, have yielded the best results have often been the people who were doing very low-tech things. I'll give you an example. One of the heroes of the book is a, an incredible man called Dr. Sam Everington. He's a doctor in a poor part of East London where I lived for a long time. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he thinks chemical antidepressants have some valuable role to play. But he could also see that they were not solving the problem for most of his patients. And he could also see that they were depressed and anxious for perfectly understandable reasons, like right. the one we're talking about. They were acutely lonely. So one day he decided to pioneer a different approach. A woman came to see him who I got to know quite well called Lisa Cunningham. And Lisa had been shut away in her home with just crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It was just kind of scrubland where dogs would go and shit. And he said, what I'd like you to do is come and turn up a couple of times a week with a group of other depressed and anxious people I'm going to come because I've been quite anxious myself. And we're going to turn this into something nice, right? So the, the first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, terribly sick and anxious. But as the group met, they decided what they were going to do is turn this, this, this scrubland into a garden, right? These are inner city East London people, they knew nothing about gardening, right? Mm. This is how they're going to teach themselves. And a few things happened. The first was they started to get their fingers into the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons, right? There's a lot of evidence, enormous evidence, that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant. But even more importantly, they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to care about each other. If one of them didn't turn up, someone would go to their house and check they were okay. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. And, and there was a study in Norway of a very similar program, which is part of a growing body of evidence, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. And this is something I saw all over the world. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we're so depressed and anxious in the first place. And yet what we've done as a society and as a culture is both when it comes to drugs and when it, although drugs can provide relief to people, not just antidepressants. I mean, heroin will provide you some relief. There's mm. all sorts of drugs that will provide you with 
with some relief from from pain for a time while it also takes extracts a cost as well but i think more generally i think what you said about these growing technologies i thought a lot about this and one of the ways i want to understand this was um I went to the first ever internet rehab center in uh, mm-hmm. the United States, just outside Spokane in Washington. Actually, I have to admit that when I arrived, it's a clearing in the woods, I get out of the car. And the first thing I did totally instinctively was look at my phone and feel really pissed off I couldn't check my email. Yeah, it was yeah. like, you're in the right place, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I arrive and they get all kinds of people in this. It's called Restart Washington. They're great people. They get all kinds of people there, but they disproportionately get young men who've become obsessed with multiplayer role-player games like World of Warcraft and Fortnite. And I remember talking to these young men and then talking to the woman who runs it, is that you should have on your show, you'd really like her, she's fascinating. A woman called Dr. Hilary Cash, who runs this, this center. I remember her saying to me, these aren't her exact words, they're on the website, but she said something like, you've got to ask yourself, what are these young men getting out of these games, right? They're getting the things they used to get from the culture, but they no longer get. They get a sense of tribe. They get a sense that they're good at something and they can rise at being good at something. They get a sense that people see them and notice them. They get a sense they can physically roam around. A study in Britain that found the average British child now spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner. Because mm-hmm. by law, a maximum security prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day. But of course, as she put it, what they're getting is like a parody of those things, right? In the same way, I started thinking about it. I think the relationship between social media, which only become more and more advanced as VR, virtual reality develops. The relationship between social media and social life is a bit like the relationship between porn and sex, right? I'm not against porn. Like almost all men, I look at it sometimes. It meets a certain basic itch. But if your entire sex life consisted of looking at porn, you'd be going around pissed off and irritated the whole time because you didn't evolve to wank over a screen. You evolved to have sex. In a similar way, we did not evolve to interact with each other through screens. We, we evolved to actually do what we're doing, sit face to face, see each other, but I think the, the crucial thing I learned from Dr. Cash, you have to think about the moment the internet arrived, right? For most of us, it's the late 90s. That I think I sent my first email in the year 2000, which seems incredible to me now. That I live most of my life without it. But at that, a lot of the causes of depression and anxiety that I'm writing about, that I learned about from these scientists, were already supercharged by that point, right? Think about loneliness, which we've talked about already. Massive increase in loneliness well before the internet. What happens is, the internet arrives and it looks a lot like the things we've lost, right? You've lost friends. Here's some Facebook friends. You've lost status because there's been a huge rise in inequality and humiliation at work. Well, here's some status updates for you. But what we've, we've got is, a, is a, a kind of simulacra of those things, a parody of those things. And I think you're totally right. We're going to be offered better and better simulacra of the right. things we've lost. But what I would argue is the things we've lost are right there in front of us, right? We don't need simulacra. We don't need billion-dollar simulacras. We don't need a small number of people will need, uh, you know, brain interventions. But the vast majority of people who are distressed do not. And in a way, I, what I'd argue for is a kind of return to much more obvious insights rather than a turn to very expensive and more easily monetizable kind of parodies or simulacras of those, mm-hmm. of those mm-hmm. things. Let's talk about the generic solutions to depression. Again, I haven't read your book. So I'm just going to guess what you would recommend. I'll just add to the list you've already started here. So engagement with the natural world is a net positive for many of us, most of us. I would imagine physical exercise should be on the list. Getting enough sleep must be on the list, although you you do have a chicken and egg problem here where depression begins to erode Mm. sleep. Social connection is the the Mm. primary thing you've 
mentioned. I would guess finding meaning in one's work, but doing work that one finds meaningful rather than doing work that one finds synonymous with drudgery. What am I missing? Add, add well, let's develop list. a few of those because I yeah. think the solution that you've identified the problems there, but it can seem daunting to people. So let's look at work, for example. This is mm. a huge one. I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started to look at, well, what's the evidence about this? How do people feel about their work? And it was um, quite striking. So Gallup did the best research on that here in the US and across the world. Massive, three-year detailed study. What they found is 13% of us, 1-3% like their work most of the time. 63% of us are what they called sleep working. You don't like it, you don't hate it, you just kind of get through the day. And 24% of people fucking hate and fear their jobs, mm. right? I was really struck by that. 87% of people don't mm. like the thing they're doing most of their waking life, right? So I think, could this have some, some role to play in our mental health problems? So I started to look at all the evidence around this, and I learned there was an incredible man who I went to meet uh, called Professor Michael Marmot, who discovered, in, he's an Australian social scientist, and he discovered in the 1970s, the single big, it's not the only one, but the single biggest factor that causes depression at work. He discovered if you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your job, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious by a really significant amount. And at first when I was talking to him and learning what he'd said, I actually misunderstood what he was saying. I thought he was saying, okay, you've got this 13% of people at the top who get to have nice jobs. They're going to be okay, but they control. And everyone else is condemned to this kind of misery, right? And I thought about my family, right? My my dad was a bus driver. My brother's an Uber driver. My grandmother's job was to clean toilets. I thought, wait, hang on a minute. Are we, are we saying these people are condemned to, to this, this misery? And, 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 and he kept stressing, it's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. And so I think, well, what's the kind of solution for that? What's the antidepressant for that? And I learned there's really good evidence for this. So I went to meet in Baltimore, a woman called Meredith Keogh, who's a totally interesting person. Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety, right? She had an office job, as she would tell you, it wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or, you know, harassed or anything, but it was really monotonous and she couldn't bear the thought, this is going to be the next 40 years of my life till I retire, you know, whatever it would have been, 45 hours a week. So one day with her husband, Josh, she decided to do this quite bold thing. And at first when listeners hear me say this, they're going to think I'm saying, this is what you should do. Then they're going to think I can't do that. And they're right. They can't do that. This is, reveals the wider insight that we can act on together. So Josh, her, her husband, had worked in bike stores since he was a teenager in Baltimore. And, you know, as you can imagine, it's insecure work. You've got very little control over it. You don't have any rights at work, really. You don't even get paid, paid vacation time. And one day, Josh and his friends who worked in the store just asked themselves, what does our boss actually do, right? They liked their boss. He wasn't a terrible person. But they, they were like, we seem to fix all the bikes and he seems to make all the money. They decided they were going to set up a bike store of their own that worked on a different principle. So where they had worked before was a corporation. Very recent human invention, goes back to the 19th century. This is, you know, people will know it because most people listening to this will work in a corporation. You know, you've got like the, the boss at the top and everyone who's like the, the commander of the army and everyone below them is like a soldier that takes their orders. And sometimes the commander is nice and asks your opinion. Sometimes he doesn't. They decided they were going to open a bike store that worked on a different principle, an older American principle. It's a democratic cooperative. So they don't have a boss. They, so so uh, they, they fired their boss and he had to go on antidepressants. <laughs> he was a sad, broken figure. Yeah. So they, 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 <laughs> they opened this bike store. And so they take the decisions together by voting. But like once every couple of weeks in practice, they agree on almost everything anyway. 
they share out the profits, they share out the, the good tasks and the shitty tasks. So no one gets stuck with the shitty tasks. But they're one of you know, 10,000 Democratic cooperatives in the US. It's a growing number. But what was fascinating, spending time with the people in Baltimore Bicycle Works, their store, which is totally in line with Professor Marmot's findings, is how many of them talked about how they've been depressed and anxious before, but were not depressed and anxious now. And what's interesting is it's not like, you know, they didn't quit their jobs fixing bikes and go off to become like Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before they fixed bikes now. The difference is now they've got control over their work. Now, if they have an idea, they can translate it into, into practice, that if they can persuade their colleagues. It's a very different way of being in your daily life, right? Now, there's no reason why we should be structuring the way we work, the thing we do most of the time, you know, in a way that depresses and humiliates so many people, right? There's no, every corporation could be turned into a democratic cooperative. That sounds like a big thing. We've lived through enormous changes, you and I. That is about understanding a deep cause of depression and anxiety. People are soaking up a huge amount of humiliation or just plain boredom at work. And we can, by restoring control to people, they can infuse their work with meaning in a way you, which of course doesn't mean, of course, there's still going to be some jobs that have to be done that are not the best jobs in the world when it comes to creativity. But the more you get, and there's scientific research about this, the more you give people control over their work, the more they find meaning in that work. Did you write about or research meditation at all in, in this? Yeah, so I was really interested in, in a, a few kinds of, both meditation and psychedelics. I actually came to the evidence about meditation, and I loved what you wrote about this in Waking Up. And I, I came to the evidence meditation actually through the psychedelic stuff, and it le led me back to reread Waking Up. But the, the, so your listeners will know, because you've, you've, you've talked about this a lot on the show, but until, until the mid-1960s, or a little bit later, there was lots of evidence, lots of research into giving people psychedelics that was, you know, not done to the standards we want scientific research to be done today, for sure, but was very promising about giving it to people who had alcohol addictions, giving it to people with depression that seemed to have quite striking results. And then the Nixon administration shuts the whole thing down mm. and the research goes dormant until eight years ago, a man I interviewed, incredible guy called Professor Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University, yeah. really reopened this whole field of research. And subsequently, there's been, there's been a huge reawakening of it. So I went to interview the teams that have done this new research in here at, in Los Angeles at UCLA, at UCL in London, uh, uh, some of the people from NYU, at Johns Hopkins, and in Sao Paulo in Brazil, and in Aarhus in, in Denmark. And there are loads of fascinating things about psychedelics, which you know much better than I do. Um, there was one subset of the findings that I found particularly fascinating, and I think reveals a lot and leads us into the debate about meditation. So they did a smoking trial. They took people who were chronic long-term smokers. And I think about this a lot because my mother smokes 70 cigarettes a day. There's an incredible photo. Wow. <laughs> There's a photograph of me and my mother when I'm six months old. She's breastfeeding me smoking and resting the ashtray on my stomach. <laughs> wow. She would wind up on 60 minutes exactly. and, and then swiftly carted off to jail. This was 1970 yeah. Scotland yeah. where you were sent to jail if you didn't do that, right? right. But the, uh, actually, when I showed her this photograph, when I found it a few years ago, she said, you were a difficult fucking baby. I needed that cigarette. But, um, <laughs> so they take people like my mother who've been chronic long-term smokers and they gave them three doses of psilocybin, the active component in magic mushrooms. And they followed them over time. What was incredible was 80% of them stopped smoking. 80%. To give you a comparison point, the next most successful smoking cessation tool we have, nicotine patches, have a 17, 17% success rate. And a year later, more than 60% of them had still stopped. Right? It's important to stress this was a small, relatively small trial. But a very striking result. 
But there's a sub-finding of all these results. They did them with um, long-term meditators. They did them in London. They've done it with depression. That I think is really, really important. So when people take psychedelics, they will have, the majority of people have something that they would describe as a spiritual experience, right? And that's interpreted broadly. You and I are both atheists. I don't mean you see God. But there's, it turns out there's a big range in how intensely people have a spiritual experience. So some people will have an extraordinarily potent spiritual experience, and some people, a minority, have no spiritual experience at all. It turns out the positive effects, things like smoking cessation, reduction in depression, and so on, correlate very closely with how intense your spiritual experience is. If you have a very intense spiritual experience, you have all sorts of positive outcomes. If you do not have an intense spiritual experience, you have very few positive outcomes. And I think this tells us something that fits with the wider evidence that we're piecing together in this conversation, which is, goes back to the opposite of addiction is connection. There's a fascinating guy in Mississippi who's doing work giving uh, psilocybin to people with cocaine addictions and is having really striking results. What the psychedelics do, we don't want to get into a debate where we act like we talk about it the way people talked about antidepressants in the 90s, like it flips a switch in your brain and that transforms your brain. That, that's way too simplistic. Of course, there's a physical effect in your brain when you take a psychedelic, obviously. But what it does is it gives you a spiritual insight. It gives you a moment, a taste of deep and profound connection if it goes well. Right. It, as, as Bill Richardson, an incredible guy uh, who also would be a great guest for you, he's the, the only person who was doing the scientific research in the 60s who was still around for the reawakening eight years ago. And he's, a, mm. he's like the Yoda of psychedelics. I love him. He said to me, it, it, I think it was him, it breaks your addiction to yourself. It breaks your addiction to the ego, right? We live in a culture that's constantly like kind of itching powder for the ego. It's constantly getting us to think egotistically. It gives you a moment of what life is like to not be that way. But then you have to find ways to sustain it. So I remember speaking to Robin Carhart-Harris, who's the professor who led the, along with Professor David Nutt, the depression trial in Britain. So they gave chronic long-term depressed people psychedelics and again had an extraordinary effect. But there was a kind of catch to this that, that Robin explained to me. So I'll give you an example of a woman. She takes the psychedelics, been depressed for a long time. The depression goes away. It's incredible. She realizes she's deeply connected to the natural world, to other people. And then she goes back to her job as a receptionist in a shitty English seaside town. And she simply cannot live in a way that is consistent with these lessons, right? If you go around your office in an English seaside town or Atlantic City or whatever, thinking that you're deeply connected, we're all the same, you know, you're not going to have your job for very long, right? So we've built an environment that in many ways militates against the insights that psychedelics provides us with. And I think in a way what psychedelics are, because most people are not going to want to take psychedelics at all, and a lot of people are not going to take them repeatedly, it's more like setting a, a direction or a compass in which we want to travel towards a more connected and meaningful life, right? What you then have to do is figure out, well, how do we develop these insights away from the drug in it, or with the drug, you know, maybe people want to carry on taking it again and again. And if they do, I'm all on their side. But, and that, that's where it led me to look at the research on meditation and so on. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You bring up a few interesting things there. One is that this notion that real change, permanent change, can be anchored to an insight. Having a reference point outside of your usual routine of unhappiness can actually give you a tool cognitively and emotionally to change the way you feel. And I think many of us would be familiar with this. And it might not even be a peak experience. 
like a psychedelic experience. It could just be a conceptual reframing of the experience that you have been finding so oppressive. The experience itself may not change. I mean, there's a few examples of this that I'll just float by you. I mean, one is one I often think about and have referenced on the podcast before is that if if you take the physical symptoms that are unpleasant, they don't actually have intrinsic significance until you frame them conceptually. So you can have, if you imagine what it's like to be at the peak of a very intense workout, right? Where you're just, you know, you're either lifting weights or you're running. So you're having some anaerobic or aerobic extreme experience. If you simply woke up in the morning and felt those bodily sensations, you would call 911, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and just wait for the ambulance, right? Yeah. But because you're, they're happening in the context of a workout, not only are they, it can still be negatively valenced. I mean, I think we would all notice them as still as unpleasant in some sense, but the framing, our knowledge of the context and, and the meaning of being able to push yourself to that degree is positive. And therefore, many of us are even to some degree, quote, addicted to exercise, right? It's, it's one of the best things we do with our days. And yet, the moment-to-moment character of the sensory experience can be negatively valenced, and yet it's a totally positive experience. Again, it's just if your beliefs about what you're feeling are scary, well, then those symptoms can be, you know, I mean, to, to be told that that ache in your stomach is, you know, almost certainly indigestion, or it's very likely cancer, right? I mean, those, those are just ideas. The sensations don't change, but one's experience would be you know, impressively changed by the framing. Another, I guess, even more extreme example for me, it does come from meditation, and it, it offers a kind of edge case to many of the things we've been talking about. So, for instance, I totally concede the importance of connection in our lives, and the quality of your life, it seems to me, is in most people's cases, is almost entirely defined by the quality of the relationships in it, right? Social isolation for most people, most of the time, is just perfectly correlated with degradation in the quality of their life. But it is also true to say that some of the most ecstatically happy and wisest people I've ever met have spent a good portion of their lives in total isolation, in some cases literally in caves for years at a time, right? And so it it is possible to be completely isolated, and isolated in a way that most people would consider the realization of their worst nightmares. This is a point I've made before, that it, it's telling that solitary confinement is considered a punishment even inside a maximum security prison. Mm-hmm. And most people prefer the company of rapists and murderers to being locked in a room with, alone with their minds. And yet it's possible to, in the context of isolation, experience profound well-being and the difference there is being able to meditate or not, right? And meditation, in this case, is really just being able to notice what the mind is like when you're not continuously identified with and lost in thought. And you know, so much of our thinking is negative. The character of one's identification with thought is, you know, almost entirely painful. But meditation, kind of in the, in the normal range of people's experience. Forget about isolation in caves for a moment. This can happen very, very quickly. I mean, literally in in like your first 10 minutes of attempting it, you can discover that 
it can be quite pleasant and even profoundly pleasant to simply pay attention to the breath or to any simple object in your experience. The breath is a very common one that people use for training mindfulness. And yet, in reality, there's nothing more boring than the breath, right? It's like if, if your job was just to sit and pay attention to your breath, that <laughs> would be the most boring job on earth. And yet, if you know how to pay attention, boredom is not a problem. Boredom really is just a lack of attention. And it's not to say there's not a distinction between profoundly interesting and creative and easily rewarding jobs and more classically boring and oppressive ones. But there's something about, I mean, just based on, on these two examples, I would expect that being able to reframe what one is doing, even if one has to do it, which is to say think differently about one's situation and pay attention more carefully to one's experience, which is to say actually become interested even in what is routine and repetitive. Again, I'm not, I'm not discounting the fact that sure. making substantive changes to what one is doing may in fact be warranted, but it is just possible to not be unhappy doing something that is classically boring and menial and, and without purpose. You know, ironically, what happens when you look at what people do when they join you know, religious cults or religion traditionally, they submit themselves to some course of training that is about crushing or at least rebuffing their egocentricity and their notion of, of deriving meaning from their extrinsic accomplishments and the story they're telling themselves about how you know, they're not normal, they're extraordinary in some way. And so you have these you know, Ivy League trained attorneys and businessmen going to you know, Rajneesh's ashram and they, they're, just, <laughs> they're being asked to scrub toilets and, and dig ditches. Yeah. And I mean, it's a cliche of what happens to a self-important person who's successful when he or she gets into the, in, into the company of some you know, religious <laughs> adept, whether he's a fraud or not. Yeah. But the truth is, it actually works for people. The people are not pretending to have punched through to some new level of well-being and happiness. They very often have done that, even in the company of charlatans. I mean, that's, this is where yeah. there's, there's paradoxes all around here. I think the reason why it works is something that was discovered by, I think, one of the most amazing people I, I got to spend time with for Lost Connections. So we all know that kind of junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. And I say this with no sense of superiority as somebody who basically lived on KFC for most of my 20s. But there's an equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. And Professor, has been re Professor Tim Kasser at Knox College in Illinois has been really at, at the forefront of the scientific study of this. So for thousands of years, obviously, from Confucius to Socrates on down, philosophers have said, you know, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to feel like shit, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said, right? But weirdly, no one had actually scientifically investigated this until Professor Tim Kasser started to do this about 25 years ago. And, and he's done this, this, this amazing research. So Professor Kasser has shown all human beings are driven by two, two kinds of motivation, to put it crudely. So imagine if you play the piano. I'm totally unmusical, but imagine if you play the piano. You play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy. That's an intrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're doing it because that thing is the thing you love. Okay, now imagine you play the piano, you know, not because you love playing the piano, but I don't know, to impress a woman. Maybe there's some piano fetishist out there or in a dive bar to pay the rent or because your parents are desperate for you to be a piano maestro, right? 
that, that's an extrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing the experience for the joy of the experience. You're doing the experience to get something further down the line out of it, right? And what Professor Kasser has shown is two really important things. Firstly, the more you are driven by these extrinsic values, what I would think of in some ways as junk values, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious and find it hard to focus by a really quite significant amount. But he's also shown as a society, as a culture, we have become much more driven by these extrinsic values over time. There's been a real rise in this, which one would expect to lead to a rise in, in depression. And I think he's shown pretty conclusively does. So has the internet affected that rise or is it, was it rising long before the internet? So again, that was rising before the internet, but it's been rising since. And mm. I think there's this phenomenon that's been identified as Facebook depression. I interviewed mm. Susan Pinker about this in Montreal, who's a great thinker and academic on this. So we know that the more time people spend on Facebook, the more depressed they become. And there's obviously a reciprocal relationship. Partly it's that the more depressed you are, the more time you're going to spend looking at it. But there's also some evidence there's an effect that goes the other way, which is, I think what, what social media does is it jolts you into an extrinsic way of thinking. I think Twitter is particularly catastrophic for this. So when you're on Twitter, what do you do? You immediately see the, how big the followings of other people are. You compare yourself to it. You're, you're constantly, how many retweets did that person get? How many did I get? It jolts you into the most extrinsic kind of thinking. And of course, Facebook does that. You're seeing everyone's become like the paparazzi for themselves, producing this kind of curated or like the Vogue photographer for themselves, producing this unreal curated depiction of their lives that you then compare to your actual life. You're not comparing their actual life to your actual life. Right. You're comparing the curated version, which bears, I mean, I'll give you an example. I know someone who's a big Twitter star in Britain, not well, but someone I've known for years. I bumped into her a little while ago and she was unbelievably miserable and unhappy. And just by coincidence, I was talking about her about an hour later and I happened to, I just went to look at her Twitter feed and mm -hmm. immediately prior to me seeing her, she tweeted, I better not say exactly what it was, but uh -huh. where's the effect of like, yay, great, you know, and immediately after I saw it, and if all you knew about her was this, was the, 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 the Twitter feed, you would think she was an unbelievably happy person. And I, I've seen this almost, with almost everyone I know who spends lots mm. of time on, on Twitter, and particularly people who have a very happy persona on Twitter are deeply miserable and unhappy. So I think these, these, these kind of junk values have really poisoned the culture. And Professor Cass has shown several reasons. So social media is one of them. The biggest thing is advertising, right? Advertising mm. is the ultimate frenemy. Imagine an advert that said to you, you know, Sam, you're fine the way you are. You look great. You smell great. You're doing well in life. That would, from the perspective of the advertising industry, be like the worst advert ever. Because right. how does that make you want to buy anything? As Professor Kasser puts it, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what's meaningful about life. There's this lovely experiment I learned about from him, although it wasn't done by him. It was done before his work. So in 1978, it's a really simple little experiment. Social scientists take a group of five-year-olds and they split them into two groups. And one group is shown whatever the, an advertisement for whatever the equivalent of Dora the Explorer or the Teletubbies was in 1978, I can't remember what it was. And the second group is shown no advertisement. And at the end, they say to all the kids, okay, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play with a nasty boy who's got the toy from the advertisement, or you can play with a nice boy who doesn't have the toy. The kids who'd seen the ad overwhelmingly chose the nasty boy with the toy, and the kids who hadn't seen the ad overwhelmingly chose the nice boy. What that tells you is just two advertisements primed those kids to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over meaningful connection, mm. <laughs> a possibility of friendship, right? We've all seen more than two ads today. And, and it's one of the reasons why I went to Sao Paulo, where they banned advertising, outdoor advertising, to see if it made people feel better. And unfortunately, there's been no good scientific studies of it, but people in Sao Paulo think it's really improved their, 
their mental health. So we, we've got to look at both the environmental toxins that are mm. making us feel worse like this, and then how we can inculcate these intrinsic values in ourselves and strengthen them. Mm. Let's talk about values and meaning, because I mean, this rubs up against other topics that we have touched you know, elsewhere in our work, uh, religion and politics. Mm. And I mean, so I, everyone, whether they have traditionally been political or not, finds himself thinking about the political fragmentation of our society. I and mean, this, this is especially excruciating in the U.S. at the moment, but it's true in the U.K. When you, when you survey the, the landscape of, I guess, politics and religion and how those interact, how do you think of our search for meaning at this point? And what sort of values are we advertising to one another beyond the actual role that advertising plays in leveraging people's desire? What story are we telling ourselves about what we are and where we're going? As you said that, I was thinking about this woman I met. So it was just before the election, the 2016 election. And I was in Cleveland following this group that I'm writing about for a, a work, book I'm working on at the moment, about how people change. Amazing group from the Los Angeles LGBT Center who do this work that's called deep canvassing. It's deeply engaging with voters. And so I was with them. They're, they're nonpartisan, so they're doing get out the vote work. But, you know. Is this the group that has targeted households that have voted against gay marriage and then had long-form conversations with them and changed minds? And, it was an know. amazing, they're, they're the most extraordinary group of people. They're led by a man called Dave Fleischer, who I saw yesterday. They're, they're, they're remarkable. So what they did is, um, in two, I think it was 2008, you had the yeah. ballot initiative in California to, about gay marriage, and it was unexpectedly defeated. It doesn't matter now because of the Supreme Court, but at the time it was a terrible shock to people. And normally what you do in politics when you lose is you go back to your supporters and you try to gin them up and you try to get more money from them. And what Dave and his colleagues did is say, actually, we need to go to the people who didn't vote for us and we need to listen very carefully to them, respectfully listen to them and, and hear what they have to tell us. So they turned up and they, 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 they engaged with people and they listened to them. And what was interesting is that they kind of developed this technique over time that was what they discovered is one of the most important things in changing people is listening to them and them feeling heard. They actually, when they tried to persuade people, it didn't work. When they listened, respectfully listened. And it's hard to listen if you're a gay person respectfully to someone saying, yeah. I don't think you should be allowed to get married. I don't think you should be allowed to have children. What they would tend to do over time is they'd listen to people and they would try to find some point of identification with the person. So they would try to find some time that person had felt judged. And every human being has felt judged at some point in an uncomfortable way. And they didn't try to persuade, but this was evaluated. I mean, it got news initially because there was an initial study that looked at it and that found it had an extraordinary effect in changing people's minds. And then it turned out the people who did that study were frauds. The people at the LA LGBT Center had no idea of that, of course. But then another study was done that found that the frauds had actually underestimated how positive the effect right, was. Right. So anyway, they now, but what's interesting is they've applied this to other issues. And for some of them, it works extraordinarily well. Trans issues, it works extraordinarily well. And for some of them, it doesn't work at all. It doesn't make any difference at all about abortion, for example. I think it's very interesting to think about why, but the, and, and we can talk about that if you want, but the, so I was with, anyway, <laughs> there's a long prelude to me saying, I was in Cleveland with them in the run-up to the election. And we were on this street in Cleveland, it's like Detroit, right? Like, a, it was in West Cleveland, third of the houses, a place called Slavic Village. It must, there must have been Slavic people there at some point, there isn't anymore. So, super long street, third of the houses have been demolished, a third are abandoned, a third have people living in them. And we're knocking on doors, and this one door, a woman answered, 
and I thought from looking at her, she was she was sixty. I discovered in the course of the conversation she was the same age as me. At the time, I was thirty-seven, and she was extremely angry, very articulate, very quite. You know, she knew her stuff. Incredibly angry, absolutely refusing to to vote. And she made at one point she made this verbal slip that's totally stayed with me. She was talking about what the area used to be like for her parents and grandparents, how they got jobs when they left school, you know, they were able to have middle-class life. And she meant to say, when I was young. What she actually said is, when I was alive. <laughs> and it really, she didn't pick up on it. And it really knocked me back. And I thought, you know, and obviously I traveled all over, I travel all over the country a lot of the time. And I'm, I'm here in the US about half the year. And I, I'm usually not in New York and LA. And that this is something I kept hearing, not in those exact words, of course, but if you create a culture where people have been deprived of the things that make life meaningful, you know, they've been deprived of social connections, they've been deprived of meaningful values, they've, they've been taught to value junk and bullshit and they feel chronically dissatisfied and they don't know why, and, and, and they've been deprived of access to the natural world and all the other things that I talk about in the, the, the book, they've been deprived of meaningful work in many cases, you will produce a lot of people who are just going to say, fucking burn it down then. You right. know, now, I implored that woman not to vote for President Trump. I'm sure you, you know my mm. politics, Sam. Um, I don't think Trump is the solution to any of these problems. But I have to say to people on my side of politics whose response to what's happened with Trump or Brexit or Bolsonaro, who will probably be the president of Brazil by the time you, this podcast comes out, or in France with Marine Le Pen or the rise of the Alternative for Deutschland in, in Germany, if our response to that is to just yell at that woman in Cleveland that she's a racist bitch, we will see these things rise more and more, right? We've created a culture where people's deepest psychological needs are not being met. And if, what, and if our response to that is for a bunch of rich people to yell at them that they need to get with the program, that's the worst thing we can possibly do, right? Now, I do think there are really great responses from the left, I think, but what Bernie, the Bernie campaign do, is doing, not just Bernie, but the millions of people who've been part of that campaign. I think Elizabeth Warren's doing good stuff on this. I think there are lots of, there's a really good response as well. I don't want to act like all, all liberals are just kind of calling people stupid because they're not. But we have to understand why this has happened. And if we go off on these things, which I care about as well, the Russia thing, it's really important to investigate that. I think Trump behaved appallingly. I suspect the worst things that are said about him may be true. But that's not, that's not why that woman would not vote for Hillary Clinton, right? That is not why so many people are so distressed in this society that they are filled with despair and rage so much of the time. We've got to engage. And I think in a way, one of the things that's really surprised me about the reaction to Lost Connections, my depression book, is how many people across the political spectrum have responded. So I think I've written the only book ever that's been endorsed by well, Hillary Clinton. It was the first book she endorsed since the election. But Tucker Carlson on Fox News mm -hmm. <laughs> like, said some ridiculously positive thing about it. Loads of lefties, Naomi Klein, I, 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 which is much, more, much closer to my politics. but. I think that in a way, what we've been doing for so long is speaking to the symptoms of the pain, right? We need to speak to the actual wound at the heart of it. We need to speak to the pain itself rather than kind of raging against the manifestations. That's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't argue against racism when we see it. It's not to say, of course, we shouldn't argue against all sorts of ugly political phenomena when we see it. But we've got to understand the true betrayal of the victims of racism or homophobia or, or just having a president who gives a massive tax cut to the rich at the expense of middle class and poor people. The real victims of that are all those people if we don't mm. understand what's really going on. Do you know what mm. I mean? I, I, yeah. 
I, I mean, I know you feel kind of similarly about a lot of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I worry that, well, let me put it in the form of a question. What percentage of Trump supporters would sign off on that diagnosis of why they voted for Trump? There are people who are complaining about the status quo. They're complaining about their, let's say, economic prospects in some town that you know used to rely on coal and now can't take a, you know, for what is almost certainly an outlier case. But what percentage of Trump voters would recognize their description of themselves that you just proffered, which is kind of a therapeutic one, a epidemiological one, one where it's like, this is, I mean, I, I could just imagine it sounding patronizing sure, coming sure. from the left. Like, we, we know how much pain you're in. You could imagine the response is, you know, just to double down on their version of identity politics, their version sure. of make America great again. And none of that is telegraphing any of the kind of self-scrutiny or subjective insights you're broadcasting upon them. That's so important. Standing above people and saying, poor you, we've got such sympathy for you. It's slightly better than just snobbish disdain for them and repulsive phrases like trailer trash or whatever, but it's still not a good way. I think the more, the more open ways to say, look, we're all in terrible pain, right? Like the level of self-harm in the schools for rich girls is insane. So I think approaching a, a person in, you know, a, people I've met in places like Mississippi and saying, look, uh, it's not true, I don't have children, but you saying, look, my daughter is cutting herself. You're in terrible pain. What the fuck happened to us? Uh, approaching people in a position of humility about shared pain rather than poor you, you're the ones in pain. But I think it's also, you've gone to a really important thing, which is, think about this in relation to, there's a lot of psychology evidence. There's an amazing man called Tim Wilson, he's a professor at the University of Virginia at Charlottesville, who I interviewed, who, who wrote a, a superb book called Strangers to Ourselves. Yeah. I've, do you know this book? It's, I, I do. It's actually, I haven't read it, but it's in, in my queue to read. So, oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a masterpiece. It's yeah. really good. It, it's a book essentially about how poorly humans understand our own behavior. There's, an ex, there's two experiments he did that are really relevant to what you're saying, I think, in terms of how we think about how we move forward on this. So one is, so I've not written about this, so I may get some of the details wrong, but I'm getting the mm -hmm. gist right. So one is you send out a female grad student to do a survey and she goes into a park. She does this in two parts of the park. So one place she goes up to men passing a bench and she says, hey, I'm doing a psychology questionnaire. Will you fill it in? And, the, and the, this questionnaire is irrelevant. And at the end, she says, you seem really nice. This is my phone number. You should give me a call sometime. And then she does it in another part of the park. So there's a really rickety bridge in this park where when people walk across the park, their heartbeat gets elevated because they become nervous, right? Because it mm. feels rickety. And she stands at the end of that bridge and does exactly the same thing. They fill in the questionnaire and she says, here's my number. And they wanted to figure out, would people, I've always felt really sorry, by the way, for the men who, <laughs> who were in this, who thought some hot girl was like, chatting them up. But anyway, they wanted to see, would there be a difference in how, in how many men called them, how many men called her, i.e. would people misread their physical elevation mm -hmm. at crossing the bridge for sexual attraction, which of course has the same physical symptoms, right? It goes back to your framing question. You know, your heart's beating fast, you're, you're, you, know, you feel a bit flushed. And I think the figure was saying like, there were 70% more people called on the bridge after they'd walked across the bridge than if they'd met her on the bench. It was a very significant gap, mm -hmm. right? So that, again, that shows us what they, they thought they were feeling physical attraction to this woman. In fact, they were feeling aroused because of nervousness because of a bridge. Professor Wilson did lots of really interesting experiments about this, but this is very common among human beings. We profoundly misread why we feel the way we do. He did an experiment 
Again, the, the details are going to be a bit sketchy, so people should double check what I'm saying, but the gist of it is right. So they did an experiment. It was a mood diary experiment. They get people, if I remember rightly, they, they get people, they give them a, a diary, a physical diary. I think it was with beepers at the time, sort of a while ago. When they were given a beeper, they had to... Now people are just depressed to have beepers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And depressed to realize we're so old that the younger listeners won't even know what the fuck we're talking about yeah. with beepers. But they would get the equivalent of a text message for younger listeners. And when they got it, and we get it randomly throughout the day, they'd have to fill out how they felt and certain other factors, like what the weather was like, whether they'd have a row with their boyfriend, whatever. And if you do this for long enough, you can genuinely figure out what correlates with people's moods, right? You can figure out, oh, Sam gets down on rainy days when he's hungry. And, you know, Johan gets down when he, you know, on sunny days when, or whatever. You can figure mm -hmm. it out, right? And what they did is when they've got the mood diary, they, they ask you what you think affects your moods. And they show your mood diary to a total stranger who's never met you. And they ask that person, what do you think affects Sam's moods? And that person who's never met you is as likely after a short period with your mood diary to correctly figure out what affects your moods as you are, mm -hmm. right? That is how little as human beings we understand what motivates our behavior. So I mentioned that in relation to the, the Trump supporters because I think, and this is not just true of Trump supporters, this is all political support. The official narrative that we give of why we vote the way we do, if we vote at all, is rather like the story of the guy who's walked across the bridge, saw the woman and thought she was hot, right? It's, it's a, it's a post-hoc rationalization of a much deeper kind of concatenation of forces that are playing out in all of us all the time. So the fact that Trump supporters would not, a lot of Trump support, I think if you approach them humbly, as I'd like to think I have, a lot of them do identify with what I'm saying. And my book has sold ridiculously well in like red states, which frankly, I did not expect. Mm. And uh, Chasing the Scream, actually, my book about addiction sold really well in red states as well. And I'll tell you about a really interesting person, actually, if you want, in Mississippi about that. But the, the fact that they would not immediately identify this story is just part of most people told accurate information about why they're doing the things they're doing, don't identify it. But I do think, I think the truth has some power when you're approaching people. And I think if all we're doing is approaching people with angry, aggressive narratives that tell them they're bad people, who listening to this has ever been persuaded by being told they're a bad person? Whoever had anyone say to you, you know what, you're a fucking asshole. And you go, you walk away and go, oh, you know what, I am a fucking asshole. They're right. Never. I guarantee you there's hardly anyone listening to this show who, who, who feels that. You were persuaded by times that people loved you and connected with you and treated you with respect. Not to say they had to agree with you. I don't agree with Trump supporters on their feelings about the president. I clearly don't. I think mm. he has been profoundly harmful and is harming those people in many cases. For example, to give one that I think should have got much more headlines, he has gutted the funding for the SNAP program, the Child Nutritional Support Program. That means we could have real malnutrition in the United States. Child, and we've already got some but real severe child malnutrition in the United States, right? I don't think there's any Trump voter who wanted that, right? Mm. Maybe there's some sadist somewhere, but the vast majority did not want that, right? And by the way, it was cut so we could give even more tax cuts to people who were already so rich they won't even notice the tax cut in many cases. So it's not saying you have to agree with them. I don't agree with them in many cases, but I do think it's about finding a respectful way to approach people that connects with their pain. You know, James Baldwin, one of my favorite writers said, the reason they're so angry is because if they weren't angry, they'd have to feel their pain. And I felt that in my own life many times. Rage is an antidepressant, right? But it's a short acting and pretty shitty antidepressant that leaves you feeling even worse afterwards. That's some of why Twitter in particular is so sticky with people. I feel like you can just, I mean, having 
recovered from spending too much time on Twitter and seeing its effect on the nature of virtually any public conversation on polarizing topics, not only are you seeing the worst of other people, you're seeing people who are willing to say things that they would never say face-to-face to you, right? The same people. It's not attracting for bad people. The analogy for me that best captures it is road rage. Oh, that's really interesting. You're, you're, you're yeah. driving in your car, and all of a sudden, you are susceptible to being pitched into mental states that you would never inhabit if you were not surrounded by you know, a 4,000-pound box. And people who really fall into it you know, will risk their lives and the lives of other people expressing what, if they were out of the car, they would never get into this kind of conflict with another human being. Something similar is happening on Twitter in particular. Yeah, you can see that it draws a lot of energy from whatever is not being especially gratifying in people's lives. The remaining Trump fans who are still listening to the show, despite all the pain I've meted out. And credit uh, to you for yeah. carrying on listening, but yeah, yeah go on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I haven't made it easy. <laughs> I think, you know, they fault me for essentially creating a kind of echo chamber here where I, you know, it's just, I'm not disposed to give a sympathetic reading of why one would support Trump. I don't think that's true. I mean, first of all, virtually everyone who's been on this show who's criticized Trump has been a Republican. There's been a couple of exceptions, but you know, the people who I've brought on for the purpose of talking about Trump, for the most part, have been Republicans. So, you know, and that's my effort to take partisanship out of it as much as possible. But the truth is, there is something psychologically and socially mysterious to me about the Trump phenomenon. I get the rage that needs to be focused somewhere, but how Trump is the appropriate lens through which to focus that rage. I mean, how he has successfully marketed himself as a champion of the common man, right? You know, this guy who has never seen something he didn't want to cover with gold and put his name on, right? I mean, it's just like he's the most cartoonish, fat cat, rich guy. I mean, he's literally someone who's just been ripped from the comic strips and also a fraud. Certainly, as we recently learned, He's not the self-made businessman he claims to be. He's somebody who was handed, it seems, at minimum $400 million. A small loan of $400 yeah. million, yes, there, right. Sam. Yeah. Who didn't get that from their parents? Yeah. And <laughs> nothing of that order diminishes his support. The people who, they like him because he's a, you know, a great businessman who will know how to get the economy running. You know, he's self-made. He's plain-spoken. He's just like them. And seemingly, there's no amount of evidence you could amass to the contrary that would diminish his appeal. And the thing that's mysterious to me is it really does seem to be true. As Trump said it himself, he said, you know, I could shoot someone in Times Square and I wouldn't lose a single voter. There's some personality cult phenomenon happening here where literally there is nothing so monstrous that we could find out about him that would discredit him in the eyes of those who support him. And psychologically, I don't understand what's happening. So I've been trying to think about this a lot as someone who very much wants Trump to be defeated. And when I try to think about it, I think there's something I've done that I can reflect on. So I want to stress, I'm not saying Barack Obama is morally equivalent to Donald Trump. I do not think that. I think Barack Obama is infinitely better in every way. So with Barack Obama, I wanted Obama to win. I'm glad he won both times. 
in my head, I formed an emotional connection with Barack Obama. And there are facts about President Obama that I do not want to assimilate, but I forced myself to. So for example, he sent drone strikes that blew up children. And then when they had funerals, he sent drone strikes to blow up the funerals, right? That's a fact. It's a very uncomfortable fact. I struggled against that fact. And I did what I imagine, in fact, what I know from talking to them, a lot of Trump supporters do when they hear countervailing evidence or evidence that does not fit with their emotional connection and their sense of President Trump, right? So what did I do at first? I said, that can't be true. I happened to have very annoying friends who kept presenting me with the evidence that it was true. I said, well, there must have been a good reason. I kept having friends who taught me through the evidence. There's, President Obama is easily smart enough to know the evidence that I'm very persuaded by that actually drone attacks catalyze more Islamic fundamentalism than they prevent, right? We can have a you know, discussion about that if you want, but I, right. I think that's pretty evidence. And I suspect Obama knows that too. So what do I do? If I'm honest, I shut it out of my mind. You know, now I don't. I wrote articles about it. I, if I met President Obama, I would challenge him on it. But most of the time when I see President Obama on the television, I smile. Mm. And I think, oh, what a nice man. Happy days. I wish we could go back to them. In a, which is not, of course, I think they were in fact better days than what we have now. But well, think about a whole range of things. I eat meat. At some level, I know where that meat comes from, yeah. right? I covered the war in the Congo. That was a war overwhelmingly for the coltan that's used for our cell phones, right? That is the deadliest war in the world since the Second World War. About six million people have died. Do I think about it? Honestly, not very much. We have an incredible capacity to screen out, you know, we, Daniel Kahneman and a whole battery of social scientists have shown this. We have a great capacity to screen out the things that are inconvenient for us to get on with our lives and to feel emotionally comfortable. And I think, I just assume that Trump supporters, and from speaking to them, I've seen that, they're basically doing what I do with those mm. things, right? That it's, now, occasionally you meet people who are in fact sadists, or you meet people who are motivated by a particularly cruel form of racism or homophobia or misogyny or something. I'm not disputing that. Mm. I'm not saying everyone is just blind to it and it happens by accident. There are people who are motivated by these forces, of course. But I don't think that's not a majority of Trump supporters. It's certainly not a majority of Trump supporters I've met. Uh, I think it's a much more complex relationship. So I think there are all sorts of cognitive forces that play out. And, and also... Well, let, let me just mm. see if I can sharpen it up a little bit because I, I like those analogies because they're, they strike me as wrong in, in, in a useful way. <laughs> if, if ever there was a backhanded compliment, there's one. <laughs> So, for instance, to, to take the Obama's drone strikes, well, first, it's very easy to see why he thought the paramount job was to kill jihadists, right? So I can only imagine he was not targeting children and not targeting innocent, bereaved parents at the funerals of children, but he thought he was killing sure. jihadists, and there were enough of them in each one of those groups so that the collateral damage was justified, and it was, in fact, better than virtually any other scenario where we're going to go killing jihadists, which is you know, putting troops on the ground or dropping bombs by some other method or whatever it was. So I can only imagine that, that that's how I would discount it. I'm imagining that right, right. represents Obama's beliefs. As far as drone strikes adding to extremism, that is either debatable or at best hypothetical at the time he ordered those drone strikes. We can certainly imagine, it seems plausible that you're going to generate some number of new extremists by virtue of giving innocent people this kind of grievance against you and your country. But 
I don't think the data show that that's the main path of recruitment. Most people don't no, become true. suicide bombers because they had a, their best friend or family sure. member blown up. And there are endless examples of people who become jihadists who have no discernible grievance about, against sure, anyone. Sure. Right? So it, it's an ideological problem more than it is a real grievance problem. There are other moves available to you to bracket and discount and apologize for Obama in that case and keep your veneration of him intact. Granted, we're less motivated to change our cherished opinions than we are to change our opinion on something we, we don't care about. With respect to eating meat, you know, this is something I have struggled with to the consternation and amazement of every vegetarian and vegan listening to this podcast. <laughs> it's just, you know, I completely accept the ethics of factory farming are reprehensible and indefensible. And we societally should have the goal of changing the system in some radical way. And, we, you know, I, I have high hopes for what's been called clean meat or sure. even cultured meat. But just the flip side, speaking personally, I have never found it a straightforward project to remain healthy and vital being a vegetarian or a vegan. I mean, right. I've, I've run this experiment a couple of times and find that it fails for one reason or another. And worse still, when I think of what to feed my children, making them vegan, I genuinely think that's a, a risky science experiment to perform on your kids, given how finicky kids are. Even being vegetarian is yet another science experiment that I'm not comfortable performing. So it's one of these areas where it's ethically fraught and there are practical impediments for many of us to getting our ethics totally aligned with what we know to be true. And I do think ultimately there's reasonable hope for some technological fix where we can scale the more beneficent ethics that we would all wish to be true mm -hmm. of us and solve these problems. With uh, Coltan is even a harder case because, first of all, mo most people have no idea what you're talking about. What do you need these minerals for your phone? And they've never heard of Coltan. They don't know how we get it. They don't know there's a war surrounding its procurement. But even when you do hear that, there's just not even a gesture at a plausible, effective action you can take. Like, yeah. what are you in protest? You're not going to have a smartphone. Like, how does that? Yeah. How does your failing to avail yourself of of the kind of the necessary equipment of civilization at this point solve this problem? But there are very few people who, upon hearing that story, would say. Oh, that's fine with me. I don't, I don't mind you yeah. know, people being immiserated and murdered in Congo over the effort to get me my next smartphone. What I find inscrutable about the Trump phenomenon is that, take this from the other side, if you take someone like Obama, who you know, we both support, if you, if you tell us negative stories about him that are backed up by facts, we will admit the wrongness of those details and calibrate our defense of him in light of the details you provide, and certain things will be indefensible, right? You know, for any cherished figure. So, you know, you, the, you know, someone like Bill Clinton, you know, I used to think he was a fantastic politician and a great president. And the more I have found out about him, the more he has been, you know, his stature has been diminished. And now I have almost entirely bad things to say about him. And that is sort of a natural process of responding to facts insofar as you understand them. What I get with Trump, with the Trump phenomenon is that there is no headway made at all, no matter how the facts pile up. So you tell me you thought he was self-made, and that was one reason why you liked him. 
Now you find out he's not self-made at all and has been lying about that, and it matters not a whit. In what sense was his being self-made one of the reasons why you liked him? Listen, a double-down phenomenon. I mean, at this point, the evidence that he is a truly awful person is so <laughs> unambiguous, yeah. right? It's always been unambiguous, but, and, it, and it hasn't mattered, but it has just continued to pile up since then. This is what's so crazy-making for me. I have never seen a Trump supporter say, you're right, that fact about him I find appalling, and I wish he weren't that way, and... I like him much less having found that out about him. I have, I have spoken to a lot of Trump. I think social media is a place where you see the absolute worst of people. I have heard quite a lot of Trump supporters concede bad things about him, albeit grudgingly. But the, but they concede the bad things, and do they care no, about those no, bad things? No, <laughs> that's a good point. But I think, I've think, been thinking about this a lot for this book I'm writing about how people change. And I think there's a group of people who have a quite interesting perspective on what you're, what you're saying, Sam. So there's um, two brilliant French psychologists called Sperber and Mercier, who I interviewed in Paris uh, a little while ago, who, who've been doing really interesting research on this. So they've been a little, they were a little bit misreported. Their book came out just after the election of Trump, their most recent book, which I'm blanking on the name of, but people can look up easily. It's Dan Sperber, right? Yeah. 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 Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier, that's it. I will not do my bad French accent and try to say it because <laughs> whenever I go to France, I always get really confident I can speak French. People always answer in English. But the, so Sperber and Mercier did this really interesting thing. So they, were, they were looking at when do facts change people's minds, right? And what they found, and it was initially reported that their finding was facts don't change people's minds. And this is just after Trump's elected it. You can see it fits with the zeitgeist. That's not what the book says. That's not what they say. They say facts don't change people's minds in most circumstances, but there is one situation in which facts really do change people's minds. So let's take as an example, juries. There's lots of studies that show juries really take evidence seriously, right? And they really do change their minds based on evidence. If there is a camera showing the guy couldn't have been there, juries almost always change their minds, right? Juries are pretty good at fact assessing. But Sperber Messi identified, why is that the case? It's because we have an extremely high degree of consensus in a jury about what our goal is. There is virtually nobody in the United States who thinks it's a good thing if a murderer gets away with it. And there's virtually nobody who thinks it's a good thing if an innocent man goes to jail. So any 12 random Americans have an 100% consensus around the goal of a jury, and that may break down over other things, of course. In the context where people agree about goals, they're very good at assessing evidence. Where they do not agree about goals, evidence will be irrelevant to them. And this is why I think about this a lot in relation to some, you know, you mentioned my, my, my book that you read, Chasing the Scream, which was about, partly about addiction, but mostly the history of the war on drugs, which I think the evidence shows has been an unequivocal and horrific catastrophe. I think a lot about one thing that really surprised me with Chasing the Scream was how many right-wingers read that book, championed that book, really unexpected mm -hmm. people, because as you know, my politics is very different to that. And I think it's partly because, this will sound like a really weird thing to say, but when it comes to what we want the drug laws to do, I actually think in American society and across the Western world, we have an extremely high level of agreement. You could stop a MAGA cap wearing 80-year-old Republican in Florida and say, what do you want the drug laws to do? Pretty much everyone says, we don't want kids to use drugs. We don't want people to become addicted. You could stop someone going into Burning Man and say, what do you want the drug laws to do? Pretty much all of them will say, well, you don't want people to become addicted. You don't want kids to use drugs. That, there's a much higher degree of agreement about the goals of the drug laws than there is about tax policy. That guy in um, Florida and the guy in Burning Man, they're not going to agree about the goal of tax policy, right? Some people will think it's to unleash business and unleash economic growth. 
Some people will think it's to increase equality and opportunity for people at the bottom. It's a whole range that we, we really don't agree about the goals of tax policy. And so one of the things that's interesting to me is when I've been talking to conservative audiences a lot, and the, one of the biggest champions of my book is a, a, of Chasing the Scream has been a cons, an extraordinary man, a conservative evangelical Christian Republican state senator in Mississippi called Joel Bromgar, who is not the person I pictured when I was writing my book, but right. is a, a completely wonderful human being. When you enter the conversation seeking a point of agreement and you can find something you agree about, you will be... Mu- now, we're so polarized when it comes to something like Trump, that's harder to do. But it was very interesting to me. At polit- I'm here in LA cause, partly because I was at Politicon the other day and I was on a panel with African-American mayor of a small town in California who's a super liberal and a former WWE wrestler whose name I'm blanking on, who's become who's a super libertarian mayor of um, somewhere in the Midwest. and. One thing that was striking to me is when you meet mayors, I've met mayors all over the US in the last few years, how pragmatic they are and how they agree and how they're genuinely looking for evidence, particularly because obviously I'm meeting them mainly to talk about drug policy and drug problems where the evidence is piling up in the form of bodies throughout their town. So I think when you enter the... Now, this is, of course, a Trump supporter is the most challenging situation because we have such profound disagreement about goals. But when you enter a conversation with someone you don't agree, affirm them respect them, listen to them, build some area where you agree with them. And it may be there's such a chasm, there's just nothing you agree with, Mm. right? But even if it's something as simple as, we all want our kids to have good lives. Okay, let's start there, right? I take all those points. I think those are, it's it's all legitimate. And and not agreeing about the goals is the subtext, which is derailing the way everyone is parsing the text across those kinds of debates and arguments. But with Someone like Trump, it's, it's amazing to me. I think many of the goals I agree with, many of the policies that he would be committed to insofar as he states policies are, are policies that, are, that many of the people who despise him agree with. It's him. He's the problem. Like, I mean, take immigration. There's a legitimate debate to be had about immigration and obviously locking kids up in cages. I mean, that, all of that was a horror yeah. show. And, you take uh, a radical don't cage yeah, the kids yeah, yeah, policy, yeah, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> who knew? But uh, who saw that coming? But the, <laughs> you know, to want to secure the border is an easily defended premise. To want to be strong on defense is an easily defended premise. To want to get our trade with China in some kind of order and not have our intellectual property stolen is an easily defended premise. It's not that there's such a, ma- a radical misalignment with his political agenda, because again, he's not a theocrat. I mean, no one believes he even believes in God. He's not my Christian Have theocrat you seen this nightmare. Hilarious book that I actually thought was a parody. Or I saw it in a bookshop. It's called the subtitle say like the spiritual journey of Donald Trump, and it sold really well among evangelical <laughs> no, Christians I seen it, no. about his like journey to Jesus. And I thought, wow, this is. I share. I agree with everything you just said about Trump. I think he's a depraved, very unwell person. In a, in a sense, though, what interests me more about Trump, I mean, I'm extremely concerned about the harm he is doing and will continue to do. But what interests me more about Trump is that he is a symptom of something. He, he, it, it's not, so um, Anne Case and Angus Dayton are these very good uh, economists who've done, they talk about the opioid deaths as deaths of despair, right? Which is exactly what they are. And I think it was them, or it might be someone else who's shown, opioid deaths track quite closely with support for Trump, right? Which is partly the, the opioid crisis is, is, is actually causing radicalism. But I think it's much more, they have a shared underlying, underlying causes, right? When I think about what's happening now, when it comes to the opioid crisis, for example, and I think about the 
but you should think about this with you in relation to Trump. So what's happening with the opioid crisis is people are, in a very simplistic way, blaming the drug, right? They're saying, this evil drug came along, it destroyed people. Now, there is a real role the drug plays. The drugs do contain chemical hooks that do cause physical dependence for some people. That's not an untrue story, and it's an important story to tell. But there's something much more complicated going on. If you think about, I think the best way to think about it is through the prism of something that happened in Britain in the 18th century. So in the 18th century, huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside to make way for industrialization into these disgusting urban slums in places like London and Manchester. They lost everything that had made life meaningful to them. And something happened, which really did happen, called the gin craze, an Mm. outbreak of mass alcoholism, right? There's a famous painting from the time by Hogarth of a woman downing a bottle of gin while her baby falls over some, out some steps to die, right? And things like that really did happen. There really was mass alcoholism. And if you look at what people said at the time, they said, look at this evil drug gin. Look at what it's done to people. If only we could get rid of this evil drug gin, this problem would go away. Now, when we look back, we can see it can't be gin that caused it. Because anyone in Britain today who's over the age of 18 can go and buy gin. And while we still have some alcoholism, of course, we don't have babies falling out of windows. We don't have mass alcoholism. What changed? It was not the availability of gin. It was the amount of pain in the society, right? If you want to understand why people are turning to painkillers in such numbers, you have to understand why they're in such deep pain. And you have to deal with those causes. And I think Trump is a bit like the gin, right? I agree with everything you say about Trump being monstrous, profoundly dangerous. I'm not joking when I say I wouldn't, if I was with one of my godsons and I was with Donald Trump and I had to go to the bathroom, I wouldn't leave them alone in a room with him. That's how, I mean, I genuinely, I don't know what I think would happen, but nothing good, right? But we have to understand why do so many people look at this person who we can see is deeply unwell, right? Like one of the most unhappy people I've ever seen and see something positive in him. And it's because they're in such pain. no doubt some are in pain, but I mean, there is a, there's a gleeful spirit of, not, I mean, you used the word nihilism earlier. I don't know that they would answer to that, but there is a joy at wrecking, if not the institutions themselves, the regard for institutions, whether it's the press, whether it's the State Department, the intelligence services. The status quo. The status but quo Sam, sucks. And, I understand, but, and but that status quo really did fuck over those people. You mentioned Bill Clinton earlier, right? And again, if I had been an American citizen at the time, I would have voted for Bill Clinton because he was better than the Republicans. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But let's think about Bill Clinton, right? Many of the crises that are playing out now were instigated by Bill Clinton. It was Bill Clinton who gets rid of Glass-Steagall, which is the financial regulation and permits the growth of the shadow banking industry that leads to the 2008 crash. That wasn't done by Ronald Reagan. That wasn't done by George W. Bush. That was done by Bill Clinton. It was done in order to get campaign donations from extremely rich individuals and financial institutions, right? Bob Woodward's book, The Agenda, which is about the first six months of the Clinton administration, is quite a good guide to this. So, uh, And it was Bill Clinton that did the welfare reform that absolutely destroyed and gutted the welfare net in this country, which is a result of why huge numbers of people are even more financially insecure and poor than they otherwise would have been, right? And the effects were, there was a time lag because it set time limits for how long you could be on welfare for your life. So we didn't actually feel the effects for quite a long time. But now the effects are absolutely devastating. And President Obama's attempts to repair the safety net were relatively limited. They, were, they did not repair all the damage that Bill Clinton did, right? Now, imagine you're, and again, I would still urge those people to vote for Bill Clinton over, over 
George Bush Sr. or Bob Dole, he was still better than the Republicans. But we've got to understand, you've got a system that has genuinely fucked people over, right? Now, I think the solution is much more what Bernie Sanders is saying, what Elizabeth Warren is saying. The, but we've got to have an answer to those people's needs. And I remember that woman in Cleveland that I was mentioning, we were with her. I can't, in my memory, it's the day after, but it might be it was sometime after anyway. Michelle Obama had said that thing at the DNC, which when I saw it, I loved. I thought it was great. And I, in Cleveland, I thought, I was a fucking idiot. I should not have loved that. When Michelle Obama said, um, he says, make America great again, we say America's already great. And everyone cheered, right? Mm. I don't resolve from my admiration for Michelle Obama, who I think is an amazing person. But that woman said to me, I saw Michelle Obama say America's already great. It's not fucking great for me, yeah. right? Yeah. And what that did is it reinforced the framing that said, if your life is good, vote for us. If your life isn't good, then he really is the guy for you, right? You've got right. to be very careful in politics to never reinforce the frame of your enemy. It's why I thought this whole punch a Nazi thing on my side of politics, people I normally agree with, yeah. was so toxic and so disastrous. If the right are saying, liberal values, the extreme right are saying, liberal values are a hypocrisy, they're a myth, they don't believe in it, it's all bullshit, we're just in a raw civil war for resources, and our side goes, yeah, let's just beat the shit out of them, or no platform them, which I think is equally foolish, makes us yeah. look afraid of ideas, afraid of discussion, look censorious, all the things they want to claim we are, that, that's really foolish. The, the, and actually, it's, and to be fair, the, again, the parts of the left that I really admire in the United States, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, have been quite clear about saying this kind of rioting when Ann Coulter goes to speak or whatever is, is extremely foolish and people have a First Amendment right to speak. Yeah, well, we agree about the way in which the left seems poised to misplay what should politically be a pretty easy game against the excesses of Trumpistan. But the know. better part of the left has never been like that. And there's a part of the left, and I'm not <laughs> by any means a kind of bipartisan centrist. I'm a left winger. But, but I mean, you, you sure. ju just mentioned Elizabeth Warren. I mean, just this whole proof of her yes. Cherokee status. I mean, <laughs> Ill-judged. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, what could Trump wish for more than to have someone taking a DNA test and trumpeting whatever it was, yeah, yeah. you know, a 148th part Cherokee, whatever her That was foolish, but, but, was. but what we have to be offering are real solutions to these problems. Can I give you just an example of, because we've talked a bit about the opioid crisis and addiction. A couple of places I went to that actually solved these problems, right? I think this is the kind of things, things that people are so hungry to hear. So in the year 2000, Switzerland had a massive opioid crisis, right? I'm a Swiss citizen because my dad's from there, uh -huh. as well as a British citizen. And Switzerland, just, it was just a nightmare. People were, you know, Swiss people are obsessed with order. It's not a coincidence they invented clocks. And to them, it's like a dystopian nightmare. They have people injecting heroin in the neck in their public parks. They had a huge number of deaths. And an incredible woman I got to know later, Ruth Dreyfus, became the first female president of Switzerland and the first Jewish president, which is a big deal in a quite mm. anti-Semitic country. And she explained to Swiss people, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is anarchy and chaos. What we have now is anarchy and chaos. With the drug war, we have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown, untreated drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease, and chaos. What I want to do is legalize heroin, which is, will restore order to this chaos. And that sounds shocking when you hear it, because of course, people, the model of legalization people know is alcohol. Of course, no one is in favor of there being a heroin aisle in the Swiss equivalent of CVS. That's not how it works, right? So if you had a heroin problem, still today, if you have a heroin problem, 
You're assigned to a clinic. I went to the, spent some time in the one in Geneva. The former president, Ruth, lives opposite this clinic. You go in. You have to go at seven in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things insanely early. It's mm-hmm. a constant disagreement I have mm-hmm. with my dad. You go in. You're giving your heroin there. It's medically pure heroin, not the shit you'd buy on the streets around the corner from where we are in Santa Monica. You're given the drug. You can't take it out with you. You have to use it there. A nurse will watch you. And then you leave and go to your job because they give you a massive amount of support to get work, to get housing, to get therapy, to figure out why you're so, why you're anesthetizing yourself so much. And there's a few really important facts. So think about the two things they do. It's the opposite of what we're doing in the US, right? Give them the drug give them support to deal with the reasons why they feel the need they need the drug, right? What we do is, if we find out you're addicted to opiates, we throw you off the opiates. That's the, the, by law, your doctor has to do that, or they'll be accused of running a pill mill. And far from giving you support, we give you a criminal record. We put barriers between you and reconnecting. In that Swiss program, so that program has now been in place for, it'll be 15 years soon, there have been zero heroin overdose deaths on legal heroin in those mm. 15 years, not one. Mm. There's been a massive fall in heroin overdose deaths outside the legal program because people have transferred in. But one of the things that most interested me when I went there, I interviewed um, the, the, the psychiatrist who runs it is a woman called Rita Mangi. And there's something that really surprised me. So in that clinic, they will give you any dose you want. There's never any pressure to cut back, right? They won't mm. give you a dose that will kill you, but any dose up to that point. And yet almost everyone does cut back over time and stop. And I remember saying to her, well, why is that? Because we're told the drug takes you over. You need more and more of it. What's, what's going on? And she looked at me like I was stupid and said, well, we give them help so their lives get better. And as your life gets better, you don't want to be anesthetized so much, which is such mm. an obvious insight. But it helps us to see why the reaction to the opioid crisis here is such a disaster, right? The primary response is, is President Trump's ludicrous claim, the solution is to build a wall. I mean, people will have noticed every prison in the United States is surrounded by a very large wall and every prison in the United States, you can buy drugs very freely, right? right. If you can't keep them out of a mile long wall around a prison, good luck keeping them out of a 3000 mile border with, with, with Mexico. But, but, but more importantly, you know, everywhere I went that had gone beyond the war on drugs, like Portugal, where they took all the money they used to spend on screwing people's lives up and they decriminalized all drugs and transferred all that money to turning people's lives around, getting them jobs, housing, support, and saw an enormous fall in addiction. Everywhere I went, there was a similar pattern, right? It's super controversial at first, people think it's crazy, and then they see it in practice and it becomes really popular. It's not a magic bullet, they've still got problems in those places. But, you know, Switzerland is a really conservative country. If it was a state in the union, it'd be Utah, it wouldn't be California. Mm. Mm. And yet once this program had been in place for two years, they had a referendum on it and Swiss people voted to keep heroin legal by 70%. It's a big margin, wow. partly just because crime fell so much and it was so much cheaper. And I think what we have to be doing is approaching people with solutions. The disaster of 2016 was Donald Trump was co- correctly identifying a deep well of pain and distress and was offering false solutions. And Hillary Clinton largely, not entirely, it would be unfair to her, but largely was saying there isn't that much of a problem here and offering not many solutions. Hmm. And on top of that, delivering the message, don't be racist, as though there couldn't be a non-racist way to be worried about immigration. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it is right to challenge racism, but it has to be challenged in an intelligent way that doesn't actually produce more racism, yeah. right? We, and, that, and that's a fine balance. And I understand why a lot of people say, why do I have to pussyfoot around this? This is an injustice. Why do I challenge it frontally and there's 
lots of ways to challenge it frontally that I massively support. But the best way to challenge it politically when it comes to national office is to actually offer solutions that will make people less angry and therefore less racist, right? Mm. Which is not to say that it, concerns about immigration are motivated by racism because I don't think they all are. So I think what we have to be doing is talking about, firstly, identifying, think about the, the opioid crisis. You know, the figures for distress in this country are extraordinary. One in three middle-aged women at any given time are on chemical antidepressants. One in 10 13-year-old boys is on a stimulant drug. 30% of children in the, psych in the foster care system are being given at least one psychiatric drug. You know, suicide is, is, is significantly rising. Obviously, we've talked about the opioid deaths, which are just more people have died than in the Vietnam, Amer than Americans died in the Vietnam War every year. I mean, we, we're talking about, uh, I mean, one of the most striking ones from Professor Jill uh, Twenge is um, the average teenage girl when filling in an anxiety questionnaire now in, in the United States has the same level of anxiety as the average mental patient in the 1950s, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's a little bit exaggerated, but nonetheless, it tells you something, right? Because I think there has been a decline in people's stigma about talking about anxiety. But nonetheless, this is a deep societal crisis. And the one thing that Trump is that is positive, there's nothing positive he has done as far as I can see. But the one thing that is positive un un unintentionally from him is it's hard not to wake up in the face of this, right? And it tells you something that Trump is not some weird anomaly, but that, you know, I'm British. My country is in the middle of telling the people who buy 60% of all our goods and services to fuck off. It's hard to find in modern history such a peculiar turn of events from a country that has been so stable. I mean, the second biggest party in Germany now is Alternative for Deutschland, who, who has candidates that say they're, they're, you know, the country should be proud of their record in the Second World War. Right. This is... This is so the, the fact that this is such a wide societal crisis tells us it can't just be about the peculiarities of Trump, although the peculiarities of Trump are significant and, and we agree, catastrophic. We have to think about the deeper insecurity. And I do think it comes down to we've created a hollow culture. We've created a culture. I mean, we, we, you and I have talked about maybe three of the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I talk about in Lost Connections, but there's obviously a lot other ones that are playing out as well. But let's just think about the ones we've looked at. A profoundly lonely society where people have got really sick values that make them really unhappy. I mean, everyone listening to this will know someone who works really hard at a job they hate to buy a load of shit they don't need, that they display on social media to get people to go, OMG, so jealous. And then they feel a peculiar emptiness because they've done what they're meant to do. They've worked really hard. They've bought the shit they've seen in adverts. They've displayed it on social media, but they feel terrible. So what happens? This is true for some of the people I love. They work even harder. They buy even more shit. They display even more aggressively on social media. We're in these cycles. We've been told a false story about what it is to be human. We've been told a false story about what it is to, to be happy. Think about President Trump, the ultimate expression of junk values, right? A man who lives in a golden tower with a really hot woman is the most powerful person in the world. He's so weirdly objectifying. He even says he'd be fucking his own daughter if she wasn't his daughter. A bizarre form of external values. And he's incredibly unhappy, right? Have mm. you ever seen a more unhappy person than Trump, right? So that tells us something about where the culture has gone wrong. Krishnamurti, the Indian philosopher, Bengali philosopher said, it's no sign of good health to be well adjusted to a sick society. And the most important thing I want to say to people about their depression, their anxiety, their addiction, is while all these things are deeply problematic, and it's not saying that this is a good state to be in, it's a, being depressed is the worst thing that ever happened to me, 
these are not internal pathologies in your brain. There are real things that happen in your brain that can make them worse, to be sure. These are symptoms of something that has gone profoundly wrong. Your pain makes sense. It means something. You feel this way for a reason. And largely, it's not you that's broken. In a world where Donald Trump is the most powerful person, if you feel really unhappy in that world, that's not a sign you're crazy. That's a sign you're sane. And we need to be taking these signals of distress and we need to stop pathologizing them. We need to stop telling people it's just a chemical imbalance in their brain. What a peculiar thing that all our brains happen to break at around the same time, right? Mm. We need to also stop <laughs> saying that these political manifestations of this pain are just signs of craziness or racism. There is craziness in it. There is racism in it. I'm not disputing that. But it's telling us something more meaningful than that. And if we don't hear the signal, we'll just carry on getting worse and worse and worse, right? I mean, I remember during the Bush administration, I was saying, I remember the last day Bush was president. In fact, the day of the inauguration, a friend saying to me, well, at least we'll never have a president as bad as that again. <laughs> and now we're all fucking building cakes of George W. Bush begging him to come back, right? Which I think is foolish because yeah. I don't think he was, anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the, we've got to hear the signal. A signal is being played for us. Stop insulting the signal. Stop pathologizing the signal. Listen to the signal. That's my mm. most important mm. message. Well, uh, Johan, it's been a pleasure. Oh, uh, totally my pleasure. Great I to do this just, in person. Oh, totally my pleasure. And I should say, anyone who wants any more information about either of the books we talked about can go to www.joannharri.com, where they can, uh, on the websites of both my books, they can hear the audio of all the people we've talked about. They can listen to interviews with loads of people. They mm, can nice. take a quiz to see how much they know about the causes of depression, how much they know about the drug war. They can find out where to buy the audio book, which I guess both of them, which is relevant to people listening to a podcast. And they can find out what a crazy mixture of people have said about the books. Excellent. Hooray. Excellent. Yes. Well, good luck with the book launch. And uh, it's launched, right? When it's it, launched. Yeah, it's yeah, out. It's, yeah, it's yeah. done its thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, good luck with all your future projects. Hooray. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sam. <laughs>